Okay, good morning, everyone. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. Very warm welcome to you. If you haven't got your tape measure, please come and grab it now. Take it back to your seat. You'll need that uh, for later in the sermon. Before we get into what we're going to do today, a couple of quick bits. The first one, I want to recommend a book to you. This is a book that I literally finished yesterday, but I started reading it a couple of weeks back, and as soon as I started reading it, I thought I knew I had to recommend it in church and just say I commend this to you. And it's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by a man named Mark Varogoop. I hope I pronounce his name. And it's all about discovering the grace of lament. And lament is a biblical subject that often doesn't get talked about. If you read the Psalms, about a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. And they're all about processing when life doesn't go well, which for most of us is often we'd like to admit that life can be difficult. And how do you process that in the grace of God? And I started reading this book about a guy who himself had been through a lot of personal pain in his life, and he talks about this series of lament. He looks at the book of Lamentations. He looks at some of the Psalms, and it's about processing that. And I found it so helpful um, as someone. I've been through difficult times. I've had low times. I've had times where it's like, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why is this happening? I've asked all those kind of questions. And so I read this book, and I found it super helpful. It gave me a framework to process. It's one of those ones I've put down now, and I almost think I need to read it again at some point to kind of just come back to it to make sure I've kind of I've got it into me. So I've got three copies here. If you'd like a copy of this, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, please come and grab one. If you don't get one of the three and you want one, come and talk to me at the end and I will get you a copy. So please run, Becky. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Oh, they're gone, Dad. I'll get you one. So if you want one, please come and talk to me at the end. They're fantastic books. Now, next thing is sermon series. We're finishing today which means we're starting a new sermon series, and I just want to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, next week, Melanie is speaking. She'll be doing her own thing. Then we've got the week after is Father's Day, uh, so we'll do something specific for Father's Day. And then the following week, we're going to start a new sermon series entitled His Name. And what we're going to do there, this year, we've looked at the book of Leviticus, the whole book. We've then looked, uh, which is one book, we've looked at one chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, which is what we're doing now, and we're just about to finish it. And the next sermon series is going to roll all the way through the summer. We're going to look at one verse. So, ooh, ooh, exciting. It's seven weeks, six or seven weeks. We're going to look at a verse. Uh, The verse is um, the most commonly quoted verse in the Bible. You find it in the Bible. We'll look at it in Exodus 34. And then it is commonly quoted again and again and again throughout Scripture or alluded to. So it is the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible. So we're going to be getting into that, looking at one thing about the name of God and how does God reveal himself to his people. So get ready for that. That'll be in, what, three weeks today? Because it's Mel then Father's Day. Right, so that's where we're heading. All right, now into this series. He is alive. We are in the last week of our sermon series. We've been looking at the whole subject of resurrection. We began it back on Easter Sunday and we've been looking at it afterwards. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the longest treatment on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in our Bibles, written by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was originally a hater of Jesus, a persecutor of Christians, and he then met the risen Lord Jesus, a life totally transformed. He wrote this letter to the church in Corinth um, to talk about the resurrection. He wanted to correct some of their thinking because they had some dodgy thinking, erroneous thinking about the resurrection um, of, of Jesus from the dead and therefore believers from the dead. And so we've gone through the whole chapter. If you've missed any of it, you can catch up online. It's all there. But if you find 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bible, 
we will go through it, um, and we're going to look focus on the end today. So we started with the beginning, first few verses there, where we looked at that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the first importance to the Christian message, first important to Paul's message to the church in Corinth. It was how he got birthed that he proclaimed that Christ had risen from the dead. Then we looked in the second week, verses 12 to 19, where Paul posed the question, what if there was no resurrection? What would that mean for the Christian faith? And we found out that it meant the faith would be empty, futile, and Christians would be lost, pitiable, um, and to be uh, kind of looked down upon. Then we looked at the next section, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was only the beginning. That actually, although Jesus rose from the dead, we too as believers would one day rise from the dead. We saw in verses 39, uh, 29 to 34 that actually the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our subsequent resurrection from the dead should shape our lives. And it should have an impact on how we live now because we're shaped by what the future will hold. And then last week, um, not last week, we were running last week, two weeks ago, we found out that our bodies would be transformed to be like Christ's bodies. We too would be raised imperishable like him. Which brings us to verse 50. Okay, and what we're going to look at in these verses is all about Jesus' victory. Now, a little bit of an aside. I don't know if you like listening to music. When you do, I like to listen to music when I'm doing stuff, when I'm doing all my household chores. See what I did there? When I'm doing the hoovering and doing the washing up and unloading and loading the dishwasher, and putting the washing out, bring the washing in, and putting all those household chores that I just do, you know. I like to listen to music when I do those things. And some of my preferred types of music are, I love 80s power ballads. Yes. Yes, I do. And I love them. A little bit of soft rock goes well. I also like a little bit of country sometimes. I get down with a little bit of country every so often. I love that. I love a little bit of Irish folk music as well. Yeah. And I also, <laughs> I also, like, I also like a little bit of angry girl music. I like a little bit of Alanis um, and to, to, to shout and scream. I love a fight song every so often when I'm doing stuff. So I love to get down to that. But also one of my favorite types of songs, obviously, are worship songs. And my favorite types of ones are those are victory songs. I love to sing songs about Jesus' victory and how he is ruling and reigning victorious and how one day he will be completely victorious. One of my favorite old songs that I've been singing since I was a wee lad is Crown Him With Many Crowns. The Lamb upon the throne. Hark how his heavenly anthem drowns. All music but its own. Make sure that's at my funeral, all right? I love that song. I also love modern songs that have been written. I love the Living Hope one we sing here, where it says, um, uh, what's it? The, um, out of the grave, the lion roars. He has no claim on me. And you're just like, yes. I love those songs, and I love to sing about Jesus' victory, and I love that when we join together, we celebrate, and we do that and today, what we're going to be reading about in this section on 1 Corinthians is about Jesus' victory. So if you've got it, we're going to read uh, from verse 50 to verse 58. So this is the end of the chapter for us. It says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore... (laughs) Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, big idea. Big idea of today is a day is coming when death will be defeated, sin will be no more, and Jesus will be fully victorious. A day is coming when death will be defeated, sin will be no more, and Jesus will be fully victorious. Okay. We've been starting this section, kind of roll back to verse 35, where we were, began a couple of weeks back, and um, the church in Corinth were asking about how can the dead be raised and what would that look like. They're a bit bothered about kind of uh, animated, reanimated corpse coming out of the grave, all like a zombie movie. It wouldn't, wouldn't be pretty. But Paul has argued from creation there that we saw that in creation there is resurrection. When a seed goes into the ground, it dies, but it comes, and there's something different, something of a different order. Um, arises and then our bodies would be like that as believers that we would die they'd go into around but what would come out would be um, a different order so he's saying that the resurrection is uh, necessary for both the living and the dead for to inherit God's kingdom we need to be transformed we need to be a transformed people and what he's outlining today is what that kind of looks like what that means and so we're going to look at three things we're going to look at mystery victory and challenge the first one mystery of our transformation. He begins, verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So this is following on from what we looked at last time. He's underlining it because he begins with, I tell you, I'm telling you this, right? So just, this is the point. This is what I'm saying. He's saying, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's basically saying the same thing twice in different ways. We've seen the, imper- uh, the perishable, which is our decaying earthly bodies, which we all have, we've looked at that, and we've seen the imperishable is the future God's kingdom, that future state that we saw for a glimpse in the resurrection of Christ, in his resurrected body, but one day we will see it fully. And then he says, behold, that's just basically old words there, and that's a translation thing. Some, people, some Bibles have that, some don't. And the reason some Bibles do it is they want to try and be as faithful to the old translations, uh, sorry, as the original as they can. And there's a word there that's very hard to translate into the English and beholds the best best we can do. We haven't got a better English word. And it's basically, listen, focus. This is important, what I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to reveal to you. And he says, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery is not a Sherlock Holmes thing. Anyone Sherlock Holmes fan? Agatha Christie's Who Done It? Love them. It's not like that. A biblical mystery is something that was hidden, that has been revealed, but only through the power of God. Not through human reasoning or intuition. It's not like we worked it out, we're super smart, elementary. No, no, it's because God has chosen to reveal it, and and it's been revealed to Paul, and he is now revealing it to the church in Corinth and also to us. He said, there is a mystery that is now an open secret Anyone who's got eyes to see and ears to hear can understand this. He says, what this mystery is, it says, not all shall sleep, but all will be changed. So what Paul's talking about there, he's saying actually not all will sleep. He's basically, Christ will turn, there will, people, there will be people alive, but everyone's going to be changed. Whether you've died and gone to sleep, 
that's the euphemism of sleep, or you're still alive, everybody is going to get changed. Everyone's going to change. He says, this change will happen. It says, in a moment. The moment there, the Greek word there is uh, atmos, which is where we get the word atom. It's the smallest unit of kind of matter. So it would be in a moment. And it says, in a twinkling of the eye, which is the time it takes to blink. Everyone blink. That's that quickly. That's probably too, too slow, actually. But that's what he's going to do. Quick as a flash. It says that something's going to happen. We're going to change, and it will be at the sound of the last trumpet. The trumpet is a common Old Testament image uh, for heralding uh, the return of the Lord. When they proclaim the trumpet, something happened. The Lord is coming. And so in that moment, there will be a change, a transformation that will happen quick as a flash. And it says, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And so this mystery that Paul is talking about is that there is a transformation coming, a great transformation for all who trust in Christ, whether they be living at that time or whether they have died, they will all be transformed. And he says we will all be changed. Everyone who, follows in, who trusts in Christ will be transformed and go from the perishable state to the imperishable state. So that's the great mystery. Then he goes on and talks about victory, the victory of our transformation. He says, verse 53, he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what's he saying there? He's basically making the same argument again, that to enter this future existence with Christ, we have to be transformed. We have to be, we can't be like this. What we are now cannot enter and inherit the kingdom of God. There's got to be a transformation, a change of state. And he says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, this talks about the results of the transformation process. The result is that death will die, which is when we think about that, that is mind-bending because we live in a world where death is the end. It is the inevitable outcome of all life, and ultimately, that'll be it. Uh, whether it takes minutes or years or decades or even millennia, things are going to die. People tell the sun's going to die. Everything's going to die eventually. You are going to die. But actually, because of Christ and because of his victory, death itself is going to die. Death itself will be no more. There will be a transformation from things that are imperishable, temporary, mortal, decaying to this imperishable, immortal, permanent state. It rehashes what it says in verse 26. If you just got your Bible open, you can scan back. It says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And actually, with Jesus' victory, ultimately, death itself is going to be destroyed. It will go. It's literally going to be swallowed up and gone forever. And Paul is quoting Isaiah 25, verse 8 there, where he talks about uh, he will swallow up death forever. Paul changes the wording, actually. He changes the word forever from Isaiah to victory because that idea of forever is just victorious. It was a common idiom at the time that actually when you're something forever, they've won it's, that's the end. It's victory. Nothing can change. And so Jesus will reign victorious. And this time, if you, Paul is quoting an Old Testament prophecy, which he does many times. If you read his uh, writings, there's lots of times when he refers back to the Old Testament and fulfillment of Scripture. This is the only time when he quotes something that is yet unfulfilled. 
So everything else he quotes has been fulfilled in Christ. This one hasn't fully come yet. And so this is the only time. But he's quoting it in a way that is utterly certain in his mind. This is going to happen. And we read from elsewhere in Scripture that this is the end. Death will be swallowed up. Jesus will reign victorious. And it will uh, all be under his rule. And he goes on. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's now using taunting language. We find this in the prophet Hosea. Chapter 13, verse 14, and he's kind of, he modifies the language slightly, but he's looking forward and anticipating the final defeat of death. This insurmountable enemy, this great specter that hangs over all life, no matter how young and vibrant and vital you are, death hangs over it all, and he starts taunting death, saying, you're not going to have the last laugh. You're not going to have the victory. Ultimately, Jesus will reign supreme. And he's mocking, saying, where is your victory? And he says, where is your sting? The image there is the image of a poisonous uh, animal that uses a sting uh, to inject poison into its victim, its prey, to kill it. And he's saying, where is your sting? He's actually saying, the sting can be drawn. The poison has been removed. It's got no more long-lasting effect because the power of death itself has been broken in Christ And he goes on, he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What's he doing here? What he's basically pointing out is how our awareness of sin works. And basically, and that's through the law. The law, if you go into your Old Testament, we did a series on the Ten Commandments a couple of years back. um, And that was kind of the summation of God's law. And the law of the Lord is good. It has a purpose. But what it does for us, if you ever read the Ten Commandments, what does it do to you? It makes you think, oh, crumbs. Broken that one. Broken that one. Broken that one twice today. And you go through them and it, and it reveals sin. That is the purpose of the law. It reveals and exposes sin because it makes us realize how fallen and broken when we are. When we read like, you shall not cover and you're like, crumbs, I've been doing that so much. And you shall not do this and you shall not do that. And you're like, oh, I've failed. And so the power of the law or the power of the sin is the law. It's the law gives it that power. And he's saying, actually, that is broken because Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly. He didn't break any of them. He died. He took the punishment we deserved. He rose in from the dead. And then he, we receive his righteousness, his holiness. And so even in the victory of Christ, the power of the law is, is removed from us. It's, we're not under the law anymore because we're now in Christ. And so even that has been broken. So the, the, the sting of death, which is punishment that we rightly deserve because we've broken God's law and we stand convicted as rebels before him, has been fulfilled in Christ. We are Free from that, and so that has been removed from us. So the power of the sin as the law is gone. And then he goes, it breaks into the end. We've had a little bit of a a little bit of a hint of it already through this sermon. Thanks, Ellie. It says this: it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what they call doxology, which is an expression, an impromptu cry of praise and worship to God. And Paul at the end of all that. He's basically saying, this is just such amazing news. The only response when you hear this and you dwell on the implications and you see what it means for my life, for anyone's life, is to cry praise to God and celebrate Jesus for his victory 
over sin and death and the law and all that means. And the fact that the power is broken, the poison has been drawn, we do not have to face it. Jesus is alive, Jesus is victorious, and he's ruling and reigning over it all. And that is wonderful, wonderful news. Third thing, what is the challenge of our transformation? This is the last verse of this section that Paul talks about. He says, therefore, key word there, if you're at your Bible, that's the one you underline, that's the one you circle. Because as a result of everything he's spoken about, not just in this little section we read, but the whole kind of passage of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what's, what's the result of that? What do you do with that? Therefore, what's, what's the implication, what's the application of that? And he says to them, therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, he's talking to the church in Corinth here, who Paul was involved in starting. He loved this church. He was for this church. And if you read anything about this church, they were a nightmare. They were not a great church for so many reasons. So many things they just they do so badly. But Paul loved them and he was for them. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, what do we do out of this great news of Jesus um, being victorious over all things? He says, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so in the light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, our subsequent resurrection as believers, his total victory over sin and death and the law, Paul gives them an exhortation. It's like, this is what you are to do. This is where you should be going. Because of all that I have laid out, over how many verses? 57 verses, and I've left one at the end to tell you what to do. This is what you are to do. This is it. The theology that I have taught you about God should shape your behavior. And if you ever read Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, that's kind of how they were. You have a first section on theology. We talk about God and Jesus and what he's done, and this is amazing, and the church, and blah, blah, blah. And then the back end is always right now, this is how you act. This is what you do um, as a result. And his exhortation is directed towards the, the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus um, in the world. And first one, he says, let nothing move you. You are to be steadfast, which means devoted, faithful, committed. And he says, you are to be immovable, which means fixed, rooted, stable, secure. So you are to be faithful to Christ and unmoving in the truth of the gospel that Paul has just explained. This truth that I've laid out, you are to be committed to. You are to hold on to. You, hold on to, you are to hold it tight and grab it. You are not to shift one inch to the left or to the right, no matter what the culture throws you, no matter the winds um, blow one way or the other, no matter what happens, you are to hold on it. No matter what comes against you, you are to never let go of this truth that Jesus has risen, that you will rise, and that death will one day die forever. So you are to let nothing move you. The second thing is, is you are to work for the gospel. It says you are, is, is that word abounding, which basically means plentiful, both inside and outside the church. You are to labor, which is the work, ministry works, is you are to labor in the work of serving Jesus wherever he finds you. You are to serve in that work and you are to keep going and keep going and keep going. You are not to quit 
And the final kind of words there, he says, you are not, because he says, you labor in the Lord, that is not in vain. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of this series, this phrase should sound familiar, because if you've got your Bible, go and look at verse 2. He also talks about believing in vain, and so he basically brought it full circle. He's brought the whole argument full circle throughout this whole chapter. He's saying, if you trust in God, if you trust in Jesus, if you trust that he rose from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead, it's all going to be worked out in the end, he will be victorious. It will not be in vain. You will have held on to the truth. You will have persevered in the face of difficulty, trials. You will have faced your own death with hope that is certain and it will have not been in vain. And in the meantime, when you're here on earth, you will have worked for the gospel, you'll have preached, you'll have prayed, you'll have served, you'll have loved, done however God's put in front of you, and it will not be in vain. So summarize what we've kind of looked at this morning. It says, when Jesus returns, believers will be transformed in a moment. Jesus will ultimately be victorious over sin and death forever. And in the meantime, we are to work with all the energy God gives us to serve his kingdom and his purposes in this world. Okay, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Let's boil this down and do some practical kind of bits as we finish um, this morning. And then we'll do a little bit of a time of worship by way of a response. Two things for us today. What are we going to do? The first one is we are to hold fast to the truth. We are to hold fast to the truth. We are, as men and women who claim to follow Jesus, claim to be Christians, we have to know the truth and then we have to hold fast to it. We are to be steadfast and immovable when we know what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and what he's done. We need to look to the past and we need to know that Jesus is God the Son. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He was born of a virgin. He is both fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in our place for our sin. He, deserved, he took the punishment we royally and rightly deserved. He rose bodily from death and he ascended into heaven where he rules at the right hand of the Father. This is the truth that we are to hold on to. We are looked to the truth of the present. He rules and reigns in splendor and majesty now. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords now. Whatever we see in the world happening around us and unfolding around us, we can say Jesus is in charge ultimately. Even if it doesn't look like that, we hold on to them. We constantly praise his name. And lift up his name and give him all glory and all honor and all power. We can say he dwells in us by his spirit because he said he'd send the spirit. He did send the spirit on the church. It's now with us. And we live as part of God's people, the church, gathered together in local congregations all around the world. And we devote ourselves to being part of that, part of his kingdom purposes throughout the world. And we hold on to that. And we let nothing come in the way of that. And, stand that. and then we look to the future and we say he will return in power and glory to judge all mankind, both living and dead. Believers will be transformed in an instant and they will all be like him and be with him forever. These are essential truths that we find in our Bible that we are to hold on to. And no matter who comes against them, whether it's from outside and culture in the world or even from internal in the church, we are to never let them go. And we are to hold on and say, this is what we believe. This is what we stand on. This is what we trust. And it's going to get us into trouble, church. Because at the moment, our kind of relationship with culture is basically this. It says, you're right as long as you don't say anything. 
be nice to people, meet in your little halls, serve the poor, that's okay. When you start talking and pointing things out and proclaiming Jesus above everything, that's when we're going to come for you. And we have, to, we have a mandate from God that we are to hold these truths and proclaim them fearlessly, come what may. And that's what we're to do. And so we need to be men and women who know our Bibles, who read our Bibles regularly to see what the truth is in there so we can take it into our hearts, we can hold on to it, we can learn from it. The Bible isn't something that just sits on your shelf and looks pretty. It's something that we get out every day and we look at. We've got uh, next one of our real-life school coming in a couple of Sundays' time. Uh, we're going to looking at the Bible and going deeper, 12th of June. Put it in your diary. Get there. You had a couple of great sessions um, Last term about prophecy and going deeper, they were fantastic. I was part of that um, and I learned loads and it was great. And it was great to hear about people talking, reading their Bibles. It was brilliant. But we're doing a session particularly on it. Come and find out about that. We do this by meeting with other believers, listening to God's Word being proclaimed, talking about it, being in our kind of life groups and just sharing about how we're doing, how we, what are we learning from our Bibles. We make a firm commitment day by day to trust in Jesus above everything. And for those of you who are here who don't know Jesus, we love that you're here. We're we think we're pleased with that. But I want to press upon you the urgency of respond to who Jesus is and what he's done. Because right now you stand before a holy God, guilty. Because if you read those laws, you would realize how much you've broken them and you've fallen short of his standards. And the Christians know better than you. They're just someone who's repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. And so if that's you, that I want you to do that. I want you to come and talk to me at the end. We'll talk about what that means. But make a response to Jesus today. And the second thing for us, hold fast. The second one is work with all energy. We are to abound in the work of the Lord. We are to be fueled by the truth that we've learned. Not by any need to... Sort of somehow get God's approval. Not by me? No? Is that me? Oh, okay. I'll carry on. We are not. To, uh, where was I? We are to be. We are to let the the truth of God fuel us, guide us, empower us for service. Not because we want to be better or trying to be better than the other person or earn God's approval. He's. We don't need it. We have it in Christ. So whatever God's called you to, wherever you find yourself, whatever your job is, whatever your career is, whatever your role is in a workplace or in a family, whether it's with kids or with adults, whatever your friendship groups, your marriages, your role in church, we are to serve the Lord with energy and purpose. We are seek to seek to forgive and reconcile when things go wrong. We are to love those around us. We are to give to those. We are to pray for the sick, serve the poor, preach the gospel, care for outsiders, speak up for justice, work really hard at whatever job God's given us to serve our bosses. We are to fade hardship and suffering well because we know what's coming. And this world is temporary. It's passing away. We are too are wasting and passing away. There is so much more beyond. So let me uh, finish with this question. How would you live differently if you knew Jesus was returning in your lifetime? I sat down and asked myself this and I just confess my mind went to the first place. was I'd quit my job, I'd sell up, I'd travel the world. And then I realized I'd missed the point of the question. <laughs> totally missed the point of the question. Oh yeah, that's not quite 
quite what, what's going on there. What would you do? Because the reality is he is coming back. He absolutely is coming back. And for most of us, the notice you'll get is look out for that bus and then you'll be done. That's the reality. So we've got a kind of, we've got a window here. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to shape your life? How is the future resurrection shaping your life today? You got your tape measure? If you came in a little late and you missed it, come and grab a tape measure from the front because you should all have one. Could you open it out, please? Okay. Uh, Here's mine. I should have asked you to get a pen as well, but if you've got a pen, can you grab that because you might need that. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to zero. Oops. And then I want you to count up from zero. And I want you to stop when you get to your age. Now, this is awkward because you don't, now this is awkward. So you want to kind of hold it close to your chest because you know that's it. So I'll obviously go down here, this really low bit for my age. When you get to your age, I want you to find it and I want you to rip it in half. And then I want you to take the bit that's, that's gone. I want you to screw, screw it up into a little tiny ball like this and throw it over your shoulder. That's the past. That's gone. Of course, when you do that, anyone can pick it up and find out how old you are. Just saying. Then I want you to hold what's left. And I want you to look at it. And I want you to say, looking at it, this is all I've got left. This is it. And what I want you to do is I want you to go to the end where it says sort of 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. And I want you to look at that. But if you've got a pen, I should have asked you to get a pen. I'd like you to write resurrection there. One S, two R's. Resurrection. If you haven't, you can just say it to yourself. So we know what the end is. 95, 96, sometime. If you've got enough room, you can write 100. You can write telegram as well. <laughs> they didn't make longer ones of these. So, it's just, so that was it. So you've got resurrection at the end. So at one end, you've got your age. Other end, you've got resurrection. And in the middle, you've got the life that God has given you right now. And if you've got that pen, I'd love you to write on that section across, I'd like you to write, hold fast and work with all energy. Hold fast, work with all energy, and then you could probably fit the reference in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Because this is what it boils down to. This is how theology shapes our lives. Because we've all got an age, we've all got a period of time left, and we don't know how long that's going to be. By the grace of God, I hope it's long and fruitful, but we just don't know. But we know what the end is. We know there's resurrection. We know it's coming. 
We know that the perishable will be raised imperishable. We know there will be a transformation that will come in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet. It will happen. So we know what the end is. In the interim, in that middle bit, is where it's up to us by the grace of God. How are we going to serve? How are we going to be hold fast to what is important in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How are we going to live with all energy now? And so the challenge is now, as we, let, as we kind of finish, and I'm going to pray, is what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that section? Because even in the moment, here and now, there will be things God's pressing on your heart by his spirit, and there'll be things that you need to stop, and there'll be things you need to start. That's how it works. There'll be things like he's pushing, and actually, why are you doing that? Why are you spending your time on that? Why are you devoting your time to that? And Now, that might not be a bad thing. It just might be in the wrong place. And when good things become God things, we have problems. And so it might be a perfectly good thing, but actually, it needs to come back in the right place. And there'll be things that you need to start that you're not doing could be reading your Bible. It could be attitudes towards something. It could be attitudes towards your work or your family or your church. It, it could be lots of things. What do you need to start doing? Something God's been pushing you about. Conversations you need to have. Prayers you need to pray. Things you need to work out. What are they? And so when you look at that, I'd love you this week to pray, to stick it in your Bible somewhere so you can see it. Stick it up somewhere. But hold on to that. And I'm going to pray now that God will do a work in you in this moment that will seal something that we've looked at over the last seven odd weeks of this. That something about his resurrection, our resurrection, the time we live now, what the future holds, the death of death, his total victory, that will somehow grip us and shape our life for his glory. Amen? Do you want to stand up? Can the band come up? And I'm going to pray and then we will finish. We've got a few um, spare, spare um, uh, tape measures here. So if you want to do this with your life group or grab some, go for it. But I'm going to pray. Do you want to hold out your hands? Close your eyes. And I'm, in, I'm in expectant and in faith that God will do something in you here now. That God will do a work in your heart. It requires openness and honesty from you. It requires an, a mod- an exercising of faith and trust in who God is and what he said. And the Holy Spirit will come and meet with you. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you rose from death. We thank you that you were the first fruit of what we will one day inherit. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you that your resurrection is of first importance in our message to the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have a future that is certain, a future that is secure, a hope that we have in you, that we too one day will be transformed. In the moment, in the twinkling of the eye, the dead will rise. Those who are alive will be transformed too. Lord, we thank you for that and we look forward to that, God. And we pray, God, that that truth would shape our life now. It wouldn't be some kind of pie in the sky over there, but it would be something right here, right now, shaping God. And I pray by your Spirit, you'd impress on our hearts how you want us to respond to this. How do we respond here now in the moment? What do we need to do now? I want to just give you a moment that you've got to do some business with the Lord. Whatever it is put on your heart, you speak to him now.
and let it shape you. Lord God, we want to thank you that you're alive and well today. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for teaching us through this passage. Lord God, we just lift our hearts now like Paul in worship to praise you and proclaim your victory. And God's people said...